What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Reese Hastings. This episode has been a long time coming, as both Reese and myself have been two ships in the night trying to schedule this damn thing. We've both had an insanely and luckily busy year, but we finally did it. So Reese is an incredible person and drummer based in Los Angeles and has played with the likes of Eve Toomer, Melanie Martinez, Angel Olsen, Kim Gordon, Mark Ronson, Tobias Gesso Jr., and many more. His mind-body approach to the instrument is very inspiring, and I hope you enjoy the five records that helped shape Reese Hastings into the drummer he is today. Cheers. finally meet you i appreciate you working around all my scheduling conflicts but like i said i was grateful for the additional time to ponder these five because it just feels like an impossibility and so i wanted to hone it more toward what i just consistently come back to daily monthly yearly during in live performance and with students of my own and in different sessions you know who am i invoking repeatedly versus like a period of my life where it meant a lot you know so hence all the honorable mentions of course yes <laughs> Well, you actually answered my first question, which is what was the criteria, so you already got that. But we'll jump into the second question, which there's a few that I'm going to ask for the first time today. Just I like to test out questions, see how they feel. If they flop, who cares? But what non-drummer has had the most impact on you as a player? Oh, I love that question. The first one that just comes so easily to mind, even though he... He, he wasn't necessarily a traditional drummer, but Jay Dilla, the way he approached the MPC, the way he played samples in such a real, live, played, organic matter. I mean, obviously, he changed the script for everyone. And then, you know, we had Chris Dave and Questlove kind of translating that to a drum kit. So it's just kind of one of those situations where it's almost like you, you did the reverse thing that happened with hip-hop, where you had live loops of drummers and, you know, James Brown band and all of that playing. And then you kind of are like, oh, now we go a few decades on, and now real drummers are being inspired by something that someone's playing on an MPC or programming, and that just is super cool to me. It's a way in which it feels like electronics can still have that sense of soul, because you always hear people say, like, oh, drum machines have no soul or whatever. That drum, that bumper sticker kind of annoys me a little bit, but there's certain days where I relate with that more than others. <laughs> In what ways do you actively seek out new sources of inspiration to keep your playing fresh on top of just going back to these records? I'm actually finding that this is appropriate timing, but I'm working with a newer student right now that we just started this year, and they approached me with wanting to have a bit more of an organized kind of syllabus 
And typically with my approach to same way with improvisation, I like it to just be as conversational as possible when a new student shows up, meet them where they're at. But at the same time, I am very, very mindful of body mechanics and posture and all the rudimentary foundational work that ensures that you can have a longevity of healthy, happy playing. So in some ways, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. I'm going to start everyone on the same tip. But with this student, he had just, he'd already graduated from USC. He studied with Will Kennedy. So he already kind of had been entrenched in the sort of school structure, schooling structure of uh, the academia related to music and drums. So I just took it as an awesome opportunity to kind of step up my practice and be able to look at the syllabus and be like, okay, here's what we covered last week. Now we're going to review and we're going to move on. And just getting that kind of real-time feedback from young bloods has been, I mean, go figure, Miles, everyone has done that. Every great band leader, our Blakey, all of them. I, I think that right now that's actually where I'm finding more inspiration. Um, he's a gentleman named Cameron Haynes. Look out for him. Great, great player. Um, another student of mine who's been really inspiring me a lot, her name's Charlie Havenick, or Havenick, sorry, Charlie, I can't remember if I got that right or not, but I'm just finding that there's this sort of wide-eyed uh, wanting to just absorb it all, no matter where it's coming from, because I tend to be a bit more of a traditionalist. My approach to the instrument, having studied jazz performance and every possible thing you could do in middle school, high school, college. So it's 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 humbling. I'm I'm really, speaking of Zoom, I mean, we're... The Zoomers, they got they got something really special right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also, what is your statement, like your mission statement as a drummer? And the reason why I ask you this specifically is because of the Hastings method, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that. But yeah, what's your what's your mission statement? I I, I have one that kind of tends to change a bit, but if you just take a peek at the website under Hastings method, it kind of spells it out. But I guess the elevator pitch would just be that it's a holistic guide for the contemporary working drummer. Sounds kind of like a mouthful. I know holistic is almost overused at this point, but I can't untether my lifestyle from my instrument. So I, I definitely I approach my instrument um, in an athletic sense, both when I'm going into a practice session or into a recording session, especially on tour. I'm warming up for an hour on my reflex pad every single night for the show. Um, when I'm home and on the road, I have a 60-minute routine on the yoga mat where it's I'm essentially doing what I call yogic stretching. And over the course of my flow, I'm incorporating sets of push-ups and core, toe touches and crunches, etc. And if there's a pull-up bar nearby, that as well. So body weight, core strengthening. I call it more maintenance, though. To me, that's all maintenance. Same thing, warming up is more maintenance than it is practice, if you want to split hairs there. But... Everything that you learn behind the instrument, you should be able to apply to everyday life and vice versa. Every great valuable lesson that I observe in the streets with real people or communing outside of a traditionally musical context, I want to then be able to apply that to the drums as well. That's awesome. Well, everyone go check out the Hastings Method for sure. And I'll link it all in the show notes so everyone uh, contact you. That. Yeah, I teach privately from my studio in Glassell Park, and I've, I've done some online lessons, but I'm sure you know with lag and all of that, it's just not quite as fulfilling for either party. So in person's where it's at. I, agreed. I'll just say yeah. that. <laughs> so let's just hop into your top five. Yeah, so I wanted to approach it. You had mentioned chronology, and mm-hmm. the way I first saw that was the chronology of my lived experience with these albums, not necessarily the years in which they were released. Mm-hmm. So, but what's kind of funny is that they almost do follow a bit of a yearly chronology. I think there's only one that's swapped, maybe. But 
Yeah, I mean, people can take it however you want. But yeah, well, let's just hop into number one. This one came out in 1972. Eggy Bamyasi, the artist is Can. The album is Eggy Bamyasi. Uh, the key tracks, again, I always say this, listen to the whole record. But Pinch, Vitamin C, Soup, I'm So Green. And then, yeah, the uh, drummer's Jackie Libzit. So what tickled your fancy about this record? <laughs> right on. Well, I'm pleased to hear that we pronounce it the same way. I was actually just learning that uh, it's Turkish. It's a, it's a varietal of okra, hence the, the can has, it's like canned okra. Um, this was, as far as I understand, it was almost kind of like their first full-length record. They had done a few before this. I think Delay was in 68, but I think that didn't get released until years later. But I initially had one of my honorable mentions in this spot, but when I first heard this record, I was completely floored, especially having to kind of, I guess, give a little bit of context, growing up in a very small town in Ohio that was like 99% white, 20,000 people. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't get to grow up in a black church. I didn't get to grow up around a lot of soul music and what, what later became my church, uh, black American jazz music. But from an early age, it was kind of just whatever was around. So of course, like Buddy Rich and Mitch Mitchell were kind of the first on the radar, John Bonham, of course. And then within that idiom, if you will, Jackie Leibzig really popped out almost as if he took the Clyde Stubblefield kind of thing and just slowed it down <laughs> sort of the way DJ screw like chopped and screwed and slowed, <laughs> slowed everything down to a, I mean, Jackie wasn't slowing it down quite that far, but he just had this sweet spot of being able to play incredibly soulfully while also keeping that wide eyed childlike approach to the instrument where it was almost like anything goes. And as a group, that was kind of their essence. They would do 20 minutes to three hour jams and the records were essentially compiled of like what, like little 10 minute sections or five minute sections that they'd splice together. And I mean, that actually feels like ahead of its time too. I mean, it's kind of what a lot of us are even doing now and creating almost like real time loops. But Jackie's whole thing is so dynamic and so funky and his, his tone is kind of the concert tom approach. He never had a rezo head on any of the drums except the snare, as far as I know. And the snare tone is just like, it's just like drum geek perfection in a way. And they got incredibly weird, which would be a good segue here because Soup is actually one of my all time, I'm realizing, because I remember being in high school, like 14, having that in my cans, if you will, <laughs> and jamming along to that. And it was just, I would have like full body chills trying to emulate his feel. And that all his displacement syncopation was just so spot on and really spoke to me from a pretty young age. That was just when I was starting to get 13, 14 was when I was starting to get really obsessed with jazz and getting rid of all my rock albums. And but Ken was that like perfect bridging of sort of the two worlds. And that's why I wanted to start here at number one with that one. Again, this isn't necessarily my top favorite ever. It was just the first of my sure. albums. Yeah. You want to just play soup then? Yeah. And if you'd like, you know, there's that extended weird drone thing at the beginning. They do that for a few minutes and then it's just a weird freak out for like eight minutes afterwards. So <laughs> we can just do that sweet spot. Yeah, I'll start around 1.30. So here we go. Oh, I nailed it. Tom sound great, yeah. 
So unorthodox. That's awesome. Truly. And their approach as well. I'm trying to remember the singer at the time. He was, uh, that was a Japanese singer. And there was this beautiful kind of like language barrier, of course, between Japanese and German. And you ended up having this very strange, weird English that was fully nonsensical. If you read the lyrics, they're just kind of all over the place. But I really loved that early on because... I found, especially being such a jazz lover, it was what mattered more to me was like was feel and metal melody. It wasn't necessarily lyrical content. That's something mm -hmm. that came later for me. So yeah, it's just so at left of center, but also very playful. There's a few more straight ahead on there, of course. Like vitamin C is like everyone's, you know, everyone freaks out over that one always. But I'm so green that it's just very very tight pocket. And Jackie's, yeah, I mean, the drum tones are flawless. The simple tones, that dry, smoky thing that I'm obsessed with, like, kind of covers it all, really. Yeah, wow. So, I, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I know Jackie's playing, but I don't know the lineage of Can that much. So they had multiple singers. At one point, they had a Japanese singer. Yeah, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first. Here I mm. go. I, have, I can't resist myself. I have to. <laughs> Please do, yeah. Yeah, Damo Suzuki. I actually knew that that was his name. <laughs> Scott's honor. I just, uh, I hadn't, I hadn't, I actually haven't listened to Can in a minute, which was another fun element of this podcast was it had me, you know, taking a step back in time a little bit, but all that to say, I still find that it's almost, it's a, Jackie's playing is a regular muse of mine. It's sort of a osmosis. I think with any of our heroes, it's, you're not even necessarily conscious of the fact that, Ooh, this feels like Jackie. It's just, Oh, his essence is in the room, you know? Yeah, and I had Jason Merger on the show, and he was saying, and I keep saying I'm going to get it, but I guess Jackie put out a book where he was talking about, like, he, he created his own version of notation that he tries to explain in the book, but it's all Jackie. That's the old, that's very surface level, because that's all I really know about it, but Jason was like, you should check it out if you're a fan of Jackie, so. Yeah, you're reminding me that I've also heard that same thing, because I remember thinking at the time, oh, that makes sense, his approach is so left of center it makes sense that he would try to not reinvent notation but do it in his own way I, wow i love that we got we got let's make a let's be accountability partners to check that book out i'll text you all right please um, do yeah hey y'all i wanted to <laughs> i can't say i wanted to talk to you about a drum i've recently received from preston at vessel drum co it's an ocean patina 14 by five and a half snare drum and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. 
and, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye all right, so number two, uh, the album is Speak No Evil. The artist is Wayne Shorter, released years 1966. Key tracks, Witch Hunt, such a good song. Uh, Fee Fi Fo Fum, Dance Cadaverous. Whole record's great. Drummer is uh, Mr. Elvin Jones. So yeah, take it away. Where were you and uh, who showed it to you? All that jazz. This one is really, really special to me. It highlights one of the most pivotal uh, turning points in in what would be like basically a fork in the road of what style I would pursue. But shouts to Adam Crisco actually too, because I saw a little clip of y'all's interview and we both pretty much had the same experience with this record. I don't want to speak to, to, to that extent, but um, I know that Witch Hunt, we equally are just that lead into Wayne's solos. I mean, the shot heard around the world always. But uh, when I was about 14 or 15, I think I had, just gotten a permit to drive maybe i would go to my high school on saturday mornings and study privately with uh, my drum instructor steve barry shouts to steve my hero he was our drumline teacher leader as well as uh, extracurricularly he took me under his wing as a private student and i'd go in on saturday mornings like after i had breakfast you know 10 a.m which felt like a big deal at the time and he would bring essentially he had all of these cassettes that he had dubbed from vinyl um, sometime in the 80s when he was in college. And actually one of them was this incredible lecture with Art Blakey in like 87 in Columbus at a university. And it's just, I'll have to, I'll have to digitize it and send it to you. It's incredible. Please do, yeah. But I remember it was probably one of our first sessions. We kind of just jumped right into it and he said, hey, I want to show you something. And I want you to listen very closely to it and I want you to absorb it and I want you to learn it and I want you to transcribe it. And I did all of those things except transcribe and I bet Adam transcribed it. I'm sure he did, but I, I just still have found Elvin to be the touchstone that consistently I just am reminded every time I put him on that he's my all time favorite. I really just don't think there's any denying that. And even if I play if I approach that style not as often these days as I used to, it's still such a through line to my experience with the instrument. But Steve cues up Witch Hunt. And I'm like getting chills 
And I think what he did was he sat down first and kind of did a little play along with it, regardless of whether it was with that track or not. I remember sit, watching Steve sit at the drum, the little bebop kit. It was the first time I ever witnessed anyone play bebop approach to the instrument. And I, I was like gritting my teeth watching him play. And I thought, that's what I want to do right there. Is, it's the hippest shit I had ever heard. That's what I want to do. So then he puts on Elvin, which takes bebop and totally throws it on its head, revolutionizes the whole instrument, to say the least. And yeah, this track, the start of the album, of course, um, but it's an incredibly important, you know, spiritual touchstone for me, this one. So Absolutely. Here's Witch Hunt. Elvin, he's just going to whisper through this, kind of tease you a little. simple fill but the way that he is able to stretch time that's the thing about elvin his elasticity his rolling like ovular eighth note triplet is just the hippest thing ever and also unconventional and he he was all about like not trying to be boxed in by technique and classical approach and all of that so and he didn't need the sort of showmanship flair that like, you know, Gene Krupa, et cetera, relied on. No, no, no shade, but Elvin's was all in the pudding, you know? And I just also, he was completely misunderstood until Coltrane took him in. And then he and Train, you know, revolutionized American music over and over. But I just, it always kind of blows my mind that up until Train, people didn't understand Elvin's playing. And then after that, it was like, oh, this is the new norm this is like the, the sorry not the new norm necessarily but the new north star it's what we're all chasing now yeah incredible incredible <laughs> all right so number three miles smiles the artist is miles davis of course the release here is 67 key tracks footprints dolores freedom jazz dance gingerbread boy artist or the drummer sorry well artist but the uh, artist slash drummer is tony williams so uh take it away tony 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 uh, as far as my approach still the instrument this day, I feel that I, I'm, I'm more actively probably channeling Tony than Elvin. 
And I don't necessarily know what merit that has to express out loud, but basically Steve put me on to all these records that he had dubbed to cassette. And I took it then. It was back when with Columbia House, you just type in an email address and you get you pay for one CD and you got 12 others for free. And so I would just like make up email addresses and just get CDs and CDs and CDs of all every jazz album I could get my hands on. The first I actually physically bought on CD was Birth of the Cool, Miles Davis. I remember I was at like Circuit City and my dad loaned me the 10 bucks so I could buy it on the fly and I paid him back when I got home. But Miles Smiles, I bought at the same time I bought ESP. And I, I, I was real struggle for, am I going to choose ESP or Miles Smiles? But Miles Smiles is somehow over the course of one album, they went from like hip to just the next thing, like off to the races gunshot. And this album I think is some of the most like definitive Tony Williams playing ever. I'm still always completely shook when I think of the little stat that he joined Miles when he was 17 in 1963. So, you know, in 65 when he was doing ESP, he was what, 19? And then Miles Smiles, he was 20, 21. And I know that age isn't everything, but it's just, you feel like uh, when you when people talk about Mozart or something, uh, you know, this like young genius, it, it seems so kind of out of reach, but it's a blessing that there are so few true virtuosos because uh, it doesn't become oversaturated or feel like, oh, everyone else has got it but me. It's like, oh, that's actually like a, a superhuman. So it's cool. Let me be inspired and not bummed out <laughs> by it. <laughs> All right. So you, what, which, uh, which song you want to play? Footprints, Dolores, Freedom Jazz, Ginger uh, Boy? I mean, it's Ginger so... Boy. <laughs> Ginger Boy. <laughs> Gingerbread, Gingerbread Boy. Yeah. It's so hard to pick just one, but I think in the spirit of kind of pushing things forward, possibly freedom jazz dance because that one is there's so much tension in it but they actually kind of morph into a straightforward sort of boogaloo thing so it's one of the first times that the miles group did a straight eighth note approach on an album okay cool Here yeah we go. freedom jazz dance here now.
I want to just play a snippet of Agitation because it opens with the Tony solo and it's like the hippest shit ever. You could just do like 30 seconds of it if you want. All right, here's Agitation. Here we go. I've never heard this before. This is this is great. Oh damn! Fresh out of high school, eighteen, probably nineteen. Whenever I hear stuff like this, I always think of they were playing back then on the. Sh- I mean, I'm not saying the equipment was dog shit, but think of their equipment back then. The drumsticks he probably had to use. Now we're like, oh, forward balance, rear weighted, all this stuff. Imagine what they would do if they could play on the quality of equipment that we use today. It's insane. They had so many more obstacles in front of them. I, I almost wonder if that plays a role in their approach in that they had these sort of obstacles that they had to overcome and navigate circumnavigate and it almost you almost you had to be more creative by necessity perhaps but there's to that point uh obviously tony forever like the feel the tone i could go on and on and on that rec i believe that that 22 inch ride symbol was a gift from max roach which is beautiful because max always played a's really bright but he's like oh this young blood wants these dark sounds i'm gonna give him one of those i think it's the same symbol on that that ad behind me right there but um sounds there's good this, there's this performance from 67 so yeah this is miles second great quintet ron carter on bass herbie hancock on piano wayne shorter on tenor my all-time favorite tenor player and of course miles leading the band with tony but 67 i believe it's live in stockholm i would just recommend you peep that is on the wooden floor of an old theater, no drum rug. He's got the old Gretsch floating action pedals and, and hi-hat stand. It's possible it's actually not Gretsch because he was in Europe. But um, hi-hat stands flying all over the place. He's catching it, pulling it in with his foot, playing it just, just absolutely blazing tempos because by the year Miles Smiles came out, I believe in 67, that was the year where they started really, really pushing tempos. And every night, 
Miles never wanted to play at the same tempo as last night. It's just like forward, forward, forward. But when you got these young bloods, you know, that are like scorching underneath it, lighting that fire, it was just like some of the greatest chemistry in all of live music. So, all right, number four, the album is "I Want You." The artist is Marvin Gaye. The release here is 1976. Key tracks: "I Want You," "Come Live with Me," "Angel," "Soon I'll Be Loving You Again," and the drummer is James, a friend of the podcast, James Gadsden. James, I have so much respect for this gentleman and a little bit of trivia with him. If I'm not mistaken, sorry, all the drum nerds, I feel like he came up in Kansas City, somewhere in the Midwest, and he came up playing straight ahead jazz. And he came out to LA in the, I believe the late 60s and was doing some jazz gigs, but wasn't really making it happen for himself. And I can't remember whose advice he took, but essentially they're like, hey man, look, you gotta learn how to play R&B to make it in this world now with when you're competing with, you know, Capitol and the Wrecking Crew, Earl Palmer, all that, like you gotta be able to like have those chops. So he I guess he went back home and just went in the woodshed for a few years. Came back out. He's immediately playing on the Bill Withers records. He's playing with Marvin Gaye, later playing with Aretha. I mean, he just and what's so incredible about him, he's like the most humble cat ever, and I'm sure that you encountered this with him, but I remember seeing one interview with him where they asked him, hey, you know, how did you end up playing with all these iconic artists and being on some of the most, you know, recorded and sampled tunes of all time? And he goes, it wasn't me, it was the good Lord. And I'm like, damn, you know, that's when, it, when I really feel, having grown up in, in a church when I was younger, that's when you actually can kind of feel like you can almost see the Holy Ghost however you prefer to think of uh, your your God or your spirit, um, when you see it translated through someone like him, who's one of the greatest, one of the most influential. And it, it's just, uh, I remember that, yeah, the interview kind of gave me chills. And I was like, damn, because that humility, because you don't, that's not a very common trait of drummers, especially with it being such a flashy sort of sportsmanship, outdo your neighbor kind of instrument, or it can be rather. I think there's a lot of responsibility in that. That's why I feel like restraint is even kind of more, powerful in, in a way. But speaking to that, Gatson was always just straight ahead, the most tasteful, well-timed fills. And I find that I reference him every single drum lesson that I've taught in the past like 10 years, probably. So for what that's worth. Yeah. When I asked him, I was hoping to get some, you know, I don't know what I was hoping to be honest, but I asked him like how he got so good with those clean 16ths on the right. And he just said, relax. And I was like, all right, noted. Uh, he did, he's a man of very few words when it comes to giving advice like that. And it's kind of, and I'm fine with it. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> yeah. If you don't mind my sharing a little anecdote. Please. I'll keep, I'll keep names out of this, but I was working with a student several years ago who reached out to James about a lesson. I think James had or has a home studio in Venice or Santa Monica, if I'm not mistaken. But Yeah, it's in the West Side somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so my, my friend shows up and, you know, James sits down across from, from my friend and just says, all right, play for me. My friend starts to play. A few minutes in, James just doesn't say a word, just stands up, walks out the room, comes back a few minutes later with a cup of coffee, sits back down again, waits for my friend to, to stop playing and goes, you already know how to play the drums. Why, why'd you come to see me? Yeah. It's, it's, sometimes I truly think he doesn't know how good he is, though, you know, because he just in his mind, he's like, I don't know. I just yeah, like you said, I got lucky. Uh, you know, God is involved and I relaxed and just, you know, right time. But I'm like, no, dude, you're a legend. 
Just, yeah. you know. Yeah, which makes him all the more special to me. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that whole like, oh, don't meet your heroes. And then you actually maybe stumble across one when you're out and it ends up being, wow, this person's so rooted and down to earth. No wonder they're playing feels so godly or feels so powerful in that regard. One one that just always, always hits is Come Live With Me, Angel. And something I love so much of that, we were just talking about those clean 16ths. Mm-hmm. But he's able to just ever so slightly infuse that swing. It's almost to an imperceptible degree. And it's when I remember years ago, someone, I don't know who, just explaining like, oh, you can learn technique, but you can't learn feel. That's something that you have to embody or live or experience. And anytime I hear James play and able to blur that line between a dotted eight, dotted eight sixteenth, and a straight sixteenth, and in such a way that sounds so natural and relaxed, go figure, that's his mantra, it seems. <laughs> I just feel that this this one is at that crossroads. I mean, every all the tracks I named are are that, but yeah. Getting a feel is very uncomfortable because you're used to being like, this is how 16th notes are. This is how whatever. You got to be rigid. Having that feel and that kind of in-between thing, it's it's scary because you don't feel like you're playing correctly. And yeah. uh, you just have to blaze through it to find your voice. But right. here is Come Live With Me, Angel. snag this record that's great all right so last one and we'll we'll, we'll mention your uh, honorable mentions but uh yeah album siamese dream artist is smashing pumpkins released years 1993 the uh the key tracks cherub rock quiet geek usa all that um and the drummer is jimmy chamberlain so take it away also another uh if people are listening i'm not just name dropping to sound cool but i want people to continue going down these rabbit holes Jimmy was also a recent, somewhat recent guest on the podcast. Go, go listen to his episode, but take it away. Well, I'm going to be listening to that as soon as we get off today. <laughs> it's a good one. He's, his choices are insane. Very <sighs> Jimmy, of course. Mm, I'm sure. Jimmy, I'm sure he didn't share the story because he strikes me as a bit more humble than that. But from what I understand, in the early days when they were forming in Chicago, 
um, Billy's parents came to like a rehearsal or a little gig or something, a very small local gig. Of course, it was Darcy on bass and Jimmy and James E. Hawk on guitar. It was, it was the original lineup, and <laughs> they, they played some tunes, and afterwards, I'm almost, I'm almost certain it was Billy's dad or mom, which makes the story like especially great, but they essentially pull him aside. They go, yeah, you know that, that band, like pretty good, but that drummer, you can never let go of him. <laughs> and it's interesting because, uh, you know, despite the tensions that did end up arising in the late 90s with them and them kind of splitting ways for a while, it's so beautiful to have seen it come full circle. And now it's still Billy and Jimmy from the OG lineup doing it um, with sort of a revolving cast. But um, Jimmy was like a, a bit of a late bloomer for me. Like I got, I of course, first was exposed to the pumpkins and must have been maybe freshman year of high school or eighth grade. And just kind of a similar thing that happened with Nirvana, where I was, by the time I kind of was put onto them, I was already exploring jazz and this is sort of more, what I thought was a more nuanced approach to the instrument. So it wasn't until my early 20s, early to mid 20s, that I started to really appreciate Dave Grohl and Jimmy Chamberlain. Wildly different drummers. I'm not trying to compare them in any way. But with Jimmy, I'm finding that with the artists that I've been touring with predominantly the past few years, Eve Toomer, big hero of mine, love you Shanti. I find that Jimmy is kind of that perfect middle ground being such a jazz student of the instrument, so in touch with the nuances and the arrangement of the drum kit, the sort of a orchestral approach to the instrument that I really admire. And actually, um, when I was on tour with Eve Toomer earlier this year, I had a day off. It was pissing rain in Madrid. And I was like, I'm just going to geek out on some YouTube videos because luckily it was one of the newer TVs where you can screen mirror your YouTube to the, so you can just kick back in the bed and like feel like you're actually watching some good shit. I was just going through some Jimmy Chamberlain interviews and there was one from even just a couple of years ago that I was really stoked on because he had switched to Istanbul Agap, which I am so very deeply honored to be a part of their team on their roster. It's definitely a boyhood dream come true along with cnc drums shout out to jake and scott love you guys i was so stoked that he had <laughs> uh, endorsed a golf i was so moved by he uses a 20 inch a symbol that's a crash but he's able to ride he has such a delicate touch that he's able to ride it without washing it out which is just mind-boggling to me given his the power that he approaches that instrument with and so there's this combo of power and grace but i was so moved to hear um since his Sobriety, uh, he's certainly taken on more of a, a holistic, you know, plant-based life. He's deep into his meditation practice and yoga. My understanding from one of his interviews was that he does like 40 minutes of breath work before performance, which I thought was beautiful. Just an incredibly grounded, healthy lifestyle and way to approach the instrument. And, and so also shouts to Jimmy from a lifestyle standpoint of I look at him as something that feels possible, that feels doable. And it's right along with my pursuit of wanting to keep my body mechanics a priority and stay in shape and keep my running routine and my cardio and my body weight exercises. So I feel like Jimmy is just like this perfect playground of a jazz guy, jazz nerd who ended up in a rock band and really wants to have a very musical approach to the instrument and wants to be able to play at a very high level for his whole life. Family man too, from what I understand. So race car driver. I mean, he's, yeah, and right. yeah, just, How did I forget that? Yeah. just talking to him. Um, I'm excited yeah. for you to listen to that episode. Cause yeah, his approach on just how he meets the instrument every day and how the relationship on a, you know, doesn't overanalyze how each day feels and it's different. And 
anyways, yeah, go check it out. He's mm. his choices are are really. He turned me on to uh, Captain Beyond. Love them now. Um, oh wow! It's yeah. He has some cool choices. They're yeah. You definitely see where he. He even admits he's like, yeah. If you listen, I almost don't want to say these because you're going to be like, oh wow, Jimmy's just ripping off all these other <laughs> records. But so, so humble. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> and also, just for anyone who's also not maybe familiar with Jimmy necessarily, watching him play, he's one of those drummers that the added experience of. I mean, I know that it's almost true for every single drummer, but just the uh, the the way in which he's so purposeful about even the way he approaches a tom or a cymbal, there's just so clearly so much mus- musicality there in his in the vocabulary. And when you see how many drums and cymbals he has too, you're almost like, are you even how are you even using these or how are you applying them in a way that makes musical sense and somehow just these orchestrations are so beautiful. But mm-hmm. so yeah. which uh, which song do you want to listen to? I mean it just kind of makes sense to just start jump out the gate with Cherub Rock because it's just what a way to start a record and he's just like doing a press roll it, it's just it's cool as hell <laughs> i agree here we go chair rock no wasted notes in Jimmy's performances. And I and and just to get a little bit maybe uh eat the humble pie again, I feel like in a lot of performances where I'm in more of a rock idiom, it almost feels like there's this expectation to really light the fire and really play through shit and play a lot of notes around the toms and often find myself playing myself into a box. But then I'm, when I listen to Jimmy, I'm like, okay, wow, there's a way to do this in such a musical, nuanced way where it doesn't feel like any notes are wasted or overstated. It almost feels like he never even repeats the same lick, which feels also very like Elvin and Tony to me, even though there's still just natural parts of their vocabulary that you recognize immediately throughout the course of a performance. It, it, it's so purposeful, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I can totally relate to playing yourself into a box. It's the most, it's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I think that especially when I have as much um, existential weight connected to my instrument as I do, having made it, um, you know, a vocation of mine, it's, yeah, playing yourself in a box almost feels worse than not playing at all. Not too, uh, no, and then you're like, every time I've like been inspired and listened to records and been introduced to new stuff, I still come back to this. And yeah, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. um, all right. So we're out of time to play some songs, but I do want to mention your, I mean, I'll list them all in the show notes as well, but, uh, your honorable mentions and you can stop me if you want to pontificate on a certain drummer. Actually, but... yeah. Do you mind if before we name them, I just give a little bit of a, yeah, of course. Know, it's a disclaimer necessarily, but sure. Uh, two things I've made it more and more explicit through whether it be online or one-on-one -on -one with students or just in private conversation that um, I genuinely feel that what I'm doing at the instrument is intended more as an homage to my heroes and specifically in this regard, black American music that I've found to be the most important art form that I've ever personally encountered and, and, and meshed myself in. And the fact that over and over and over that idiom was revolutionized by people during a time that all odds were against them. And so genuinely you see this forged by fire essence that has never been more true, at least not in my personal experience. And another little side note is that I'm realizing that all of my albums that we're sort of naming out, it's definitely a bit of a dude fest. I haven't mentioned any female or femme drummers, but I wanted to be honest to my lived approach growing up with the instrument and just what I happen to be exposed to at the time and what I'm consistently actively motivated by or what I feel like is infused into my playing. There's so many different styles of drummer and so many different types of people who uh, inspire me. But as far as drummers that I've actually embodied and taken on and have had like an, an ongoing lived experience with, that's why this list ended up the way it did. But I want to acknowledge all the great femme and female and non-binary and all the great players out there in any idiom whatsoever. Um, Absolutely. Specifically, shouts to Carlo Azar, Autolux, Cindy Blackman, Santana, one of the all-time, 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 Terry Lynn Carrington, doing the same thing Tony did, playing with all the greats, like age 14, straight out of Boston, doing it. So, yeah, um, thank you for letting me just state that. Absolutely. And I want to add in, uh, Philo Chungi is also ripping it. She's out with... Um, uh, Mars Volta right now and just killing it. But all right, so yeah, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? Led Zeppelin's Houses of the Holy, Yes is the Yes album, Song of Innocence by David Axelrod, uh, Minnie Ripperton, Adventures in Paradise, D'Angelo's Voodoo, and then one of the guys you got uh, inspiration from, uh, I mean, I guess one of the guys, but the first one, the first one you mentioned, Jay Dilla, The Shining. And I mean, that's a great list, even just starting there. And, and going, I think that'll make anyone into a better player. Yeah, yeah, amen. And uh, just specifically a Carla Azar album that really had a heavy influence on me uh, with Autolux, Future Perfect. It was their first record. Yeah, that was their first one, right? Yeah. Is that the one with, uh, starts off with, oh my God, Turnstile Blues? Oh, Turnstile Blues. She's playing, it sound, the way I always thought of it is it's like a metal factory and her backbeats are like the hammer on the on the heated metal, and you just mm. see sparks flying off. Just the production of that, but her approach is just so hip and like fangs out. That's like yeah, one of my all time favorite drum tracks. 
And I realized after I had sent the honorable mentions and I'm like, why did I not put Autolux on there? So I'm glad we got to shout out Carla Azar. Those first two, by the way, um, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? That was one of three vinyls that my dad hung on to, like from college. He'd sold all the rest. And so from age 11 or 12, I was spinning that one over and over and over and over. And so it just makes sense that Mitch was such an early influence on mine. And the approach that every all the drums are so wide open, it's very kind of nasty and lo-fi. It's very cool. And Manic Depression alone is just like an, a drum solo the entire track. And then Houses of the Holy, that one always hits me around the holidays because uh, eighth grade Christmas, I had that one on repeat you know, all day long. And in the morning, it was still dark out. And I'd walk to the bus, it'd be like a full moon, and just snow covered landscape. And I'd have my little disman with Houses of the Holy, like walking down, and get on the back of the bus above the heater. And just that's such a like a nostalgic record for me. But speaking of no wasted notes, I mean, Bonham on that the fills are just so you can sing every single one of them. And I've actually played it on repeat the last couple nights on vinyl in preparation for this. It's just you just smile every time and you and you always know exactly what he's going to do in the best way, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and then, yeah, the uh, David Axelrod record, it's the a lot of the drum parts are so simple, but they're so they're so perfect and they just fucking flow. Earl Palmer, an OG man, played, he he helped literally create rock and roll, you know, on early recordings. Uh, I believe he did either he did some with Little Richard Chuck Berry, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, he's like one of the most recorded drummers of all time. But then when he was with the Wrecking Crew at Capitol, mid-60s on, it was like how Blaine was doing the kind of like straight-ahead pop thing. And then Earl was like, let me bring in the sauce and like really kick your ass. And with Earl and Carol Kay together, I think is like one of my all-time favorite rhythm sections. Talk about Tone Queen for sure. But Earl, for him to have been such a rock and roll OG and then to have gotten onto the vanguard and plays so incredibly hiply on that album i mean everything he played on but especially the way the drums are recorded on that there's such a beautiful mix and some of his solos on that are just so beautiful and musical he's just hip as hell i love earl yeah <laughs> and i uh, i've heard stories of jim gordon when he first moved to la what uh, earl saw something in him and he would just have him just sit behind him and jim would just uh, just watch earl play and then of course jim became jim but I think just digesting Earl's playing was a huge part of that. That that was it. And I think at the time, Earl was doing, I read this staggering number, like he was doing like 400 sessions a year or something. So like obviously Jeez. more than two a day. And Jim kind of became his sort of understudy and took on sessions that Earl wasn't available for. And Jim and also with Bill Bruford, two of, uh, two of the guys who could bring that, soul and that musicality but also felt like they were paying homage to the heroes but developing a very distinct voice of their own um mm -hmm. but jim on adventures in paradise that's my all-time favorite mini ripperton album his playing on that is so incredibly musical the drums are just like that's like the chef chef's kiss of analog recordings you know mid-70s what's what's the record album. uh mini ripperton adventures in paradise mini ripperton okay i don't think i know that one Mini mm, Ripperton Adventures in Paradise. on a couch with a with a lion, and it's just like, <laughs> yeah, Jim's playing on that is just so incredibly brilliant, and it always breaks my heart to know the way that things kind of turned out for him. It just, you just never know. I mean, uh, genius come out of anywhere, and it can it can leave at any time too. Not yeah, I know. I wish. Him, but, you know. No, yeah, no, I know. I wish he was. 
I mean, he was in in a time when he was able to do that kind of music that was so perfect for that time period for him. But I wish he was around a time when maybe mental health was a little more easily talked about and maybe he could have gotten um, some help when back then maybe he felt like he couldn't. So yeah, there's a tragedy in a lot of ways for sure. Right, right, right. And kind of to that point, uh, it's, it is a blessing as well to live in a time where more and more folks feel like they have access to express themselves on the drum. Because again, with it being such like a boys sport for so long, mm-hmm. there was a kind of this brow beating kind of one-upmanship. And I think a lot of people just felt sort of intimidated or like they weren't welcome at the table. And, and so I'm just so stoked that there's more more and more room at the table for everyone, as there always should have been. Um, so to speak to that point with Jim, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm happy to see things moving in the direction they are. Absolutely. In that regard. Amen. Well, um, I want people to be able to find you. I mean, obviously all the links you've talked about are going to be in the show notes, but if people do yeah. want to go check you out, your website, uh, check out just you. Yeah, give yourself platforms yours and then I'll, I'll let you go. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, I was yeah. a little bashful about maybe overstaying my welcome. No, I no, like, no, no. I, I feel bad hours, keeping you. Man. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I spent, I spent over half the year on the road with the Eve Tumor this year, and I'm very happy to say it was uh, definitely our most successful run, run yet. Um, for me personally, more career highlights in one tour than I've ever encountered. So I just feel incredibly blessed and grateful and honored to work with that team um, and pull off shows of such a high caliber. It really means a lot to me. Um, incredibly humbling. My website is just Reese, R-H-Y-S-Hastings.com. And my IG is my only social media platform, but it's at Reese, R-H-Y-S, double underscore Hastings. Next year, uh, still mapping that out. It tends to be the case with freelance, but uh, I know for me personally, there's a lot of festival dates on the books, which I'm excited about. I always love playing festivals and um, at least a few runs coming up in probably late spring to start. So I'm going to have a little bit of a breather where I'm going to be focusing on a little bit of time here in L.A., and um, actually moving house for the first time in 12 years too, which I'm really excited about. Well, shit, man. Um, this was this was awesome, dude. Thank you so much. I loved all your choices. I, I definitely want to want to check out that uh, more of that Marvin Gaye record. I really didn't know how awesome that was. I was checking it out before we got on. Oh, man. I mean, the title track alone, um, but on the remastered deluxe edition, there's a there's an instrumental only version. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Maybe it's called like Intro Jam or something, but they've mixed his drums up even hotter. Oh, shit. Oh, I remember showing a friend that for the first time. We were driving through like Toluca Lake and he was just on fire. He was losing it. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, dig into that one. All right, man. Well, I'll uh, I'll let you go, man. But this, this was so fun. Awesome. Thanks again, Ben. I'm stoked, man. I appreciate you having me. It's an honor. All right, today's big fat favorite is from Dan Mayo. Love Dan's playing. Go check him out. I believe on Instagram he's Mayo Drummer. And his choice is, or one of his choices, is the album Afrikia. The release year is 2001. The artist is Karim Zayed. The song choice is The Joker. And the drummer is Karim Zayed. So here's what Dan had to say. Karim played a massive role in my musical journey. Through Kareem, I learned these three valuable lessons. I learned how to see the song and its energy in much more depth. I learned how to be its guide, to see where the final destination is, and to take the band there smartly and organically while still supporting the musicians. They can fly away, but my role as a drummer is to fly with them as far as they want while knowing where we are going and how to return to the track. 
I also discovered how to free myself from the one on the kick drum through Karim. I feel comfortable floating in the music while my internal one is stronger than ever. I also learned the ability to play freely over odd time signatures and not to let it be an issue while playing it. It should feel like 4-4, natural. There's no need to play the one every bar. Just feel the internal clave and sail away. All right, here is The Joker by Karim Zayed. That's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.